everyone. Joshua Gilliland here with Captain Thomas Harper, and we're here to talk about Solo. Thomas, how are you? I am outstanding, and I am so glad that once again, Star Wars is featuring a character in Beckett who is the same rank as me. Whether he stole it or not, it, it makes us kindred spirits. And Lando introduces himself as a captain, so yes. Yeah, true. Bunch of captains running around. So, and, and I assume it's all it's all the army version of captain. Nobody is is going for the higher ranking navy version. <laughs> yes, yes. If only we had done that standard rank thing, but yeah, we just it didn't work for us. It didn't make too much sense. Yeah, it was well post World War Two, and you had all these services go like, no, we got a long history. Screw you. We're not all going to wear the same <laughs> uniform, and no, and I I understand why. But that's not important right now. What is, is how many times have you seen Solo? Now three. I got a call that I could not refuse yesterday from my father-in-law. Uh, my wife, by the way, is was due two days ago and with our first baby. So, Josh, you know this very well and have been tracking very closely with our progress. But for, for those of you legal listeners who may not be familiar, our first youngling is now past due. So we've been sort of on watch. I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to make it through the first episode. Actually, my wife, Marissa, was petrified that she was going to go into labor during the movie. Uh, not because we wouldn't be able to make it to the hospital, but because we wouldn't be able to finish the movie. And she, before we went in, she was like, well, what happens if, it, if, if the baby starts to come during the movie? I was like, A, I will get up and shout to the entire crowd that how awesome this is and then apologize quickly. And B, that'll be a story for the lifetime. Like, obviously, we're not going to stay for the movie, but that didn't happen. But my father-in-law called me, and I was able to sneak away for a third viewing. So uh, this baby is off to the right start in my book. Yeah, you, you could have gone to the movie with the uh, OBGYN and uh... <laughs> just keep her hooked up to some, you know, monitoring devices. Like, is, is it time yet? No, no. Okay. <laughs> That would have been hysterical. How about you? How many times for you so far? Right now, just one, but I'm going tomorrow. Excellent. And so what happened uh, this weekend, you know, starting on Friday, was uh, the largest Sea Scout regatta in the country. And I had to go to that because I, well, that's, I'm a volunteer. That's what I do. So I saw it uh, Thursday night, as any good Star Wars fan, knowing Times Limited would do. And, uh, you know, got home from the regatta today and I've been kind of walking wounded and started working on the first blog post about it. Uh, I was able to do some research before going to, to the regatta. Uh, but I'll go tomorrow night with a friend. And uh, there'll probably be a third time as well, just because I generally see a Star Wars movie three times in the theater for, yeah. for research purposes, you know, just yeah. in case, research that's what I tell Marissa too. It's it's for future posts, so don't worry about the this fourth, fifth, and sixth time. It's it's scientific. Yeah, it's scientific. It's medicinal. It's uh, <laughs> it's legal, honey. It's legal, and let me know how that works out for you. So. It it doesn't work out well in my case because since Marissa is also a lawyer uh, and knows how how much Star Wars has the tendency to just get stuck in my brain like a you know a parasite. She knows that I don't need to go back and watch it for any real purpose. So I get called out, but she lets me go. So that's okay. <laughs> it's, that is awesome. I'm glad not everyone gets that. Well done, sir. 
well done. We'll we'll get her something nice for <laughs> for a nice cape, perhaps. <laughs> it's custom. <laughs> oh, so let's talk about. Uh, the th- we'll take one minute, each of us, thirty seconds to to say. Did you like the movie? Dislike it? Love it? What's your thoughts on Solo? I really, really liked it. I if if this is the standard bearer for quote unquote Star Wars movies we don't need or have low stakes, I'm I'm all in. This this movie was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it just as much the third time around as I did the first. I enjoy it as a change of pace from a movie, one of the episodic movies like a Last Jedi, The Last Jedi, where my brain is engaged and just really delving deep into things. This one was one where you can just strap in and enjoy the ride. And I thought Ron Howard just really in that aspect did a fantastic job. I agree. I like the anthology movies, uh, excuse me, the, you know, the standalones a lot as opposed to the saga films because you can just go in and watch it. And this movie was fun. Now, like all Star Wars movies have some fun to it, but Last Jedi was was heavy. And yeah. there was a there was a lot there that psychologists could dig into, great legal issues for us, but it was weighty and it was also generational with and there was a lot lot there. This was part cowboy, you know, space cowboy movie and with a scoundrel and uh, he does go through some personal growth. There are things that happen to him that cause him to make some changes in life. And it was just fun. And it had all the check boxes I wanted. Uh, I do say I loved it because it made me happy. (laughs) And I look forward to seeing it again. Yeah. That's always my measure is in subsequent viewings in the theater. I've had I, I've sat in Star Wars movies, The Force Awakens in particular, where on the third or fourth time viewing it, especially if I'm viewing it like you know day after day or something like that in a close in period, I got to the point with The Force Awakens where I had a couple viewings that I didn't have that much fun in, and not because the movie's bad, but just you know I tired of it uh, just a little bit, and it, at the third time seeing it. I have not gotten anywhere close to that point with solo and I would love to see it at least one more time before the baby comes. And I, I just have a, I've had a smile plastered on my face, even just listening to the soundtrack. So that speaks volumes about what they were able to accomplish with it. I I really like the soundtrack as well, because I listened to that on Spotify while I was doing legal research into one of the issues. And it's just, it's fun. It's a good, it's a good flick. Well, we can get more into analysis of of the film itself. uh, But let's talk about the legal issues because that's why we're here. So one of the first things that we see in Han and Kira trying to escape uh, Corella Am I saying that correctly? Corellia. Corellia. Uh, exactly. Is bribery of a uh, kind of like a, um, not TSA agent, but more almost like a customs agent in yeah. being able to get through that checkpoint. What are your thoughts on that? 
So definitely illegal. And it, it's funny because this particular customs agent, uh, they, they call them transport security officers. So they are, I guess they're a hybrid of the TSA and, uh, you know, some sort of customs agent. But these are almost, I guess the, the way they're described in some of the outside materials, because they don't get into it in the movie, are civilian dock personnel that were, I guess, in a way conscripted in. And so you see Han and Kira go up and use that vial of coaxium. I think it's very clearly bribery. And it's funny that, you know, the one thing that Kira is worried about is a setup because they know the intent is there to bribe them. I mean, you know, their objective is to get through the gate without the proper credentials. They've got no legal authorization to make it through to the transport. And they're specifically targeting, you know, that officer and attempting a, a, this quid pro quo exchange where you're, you're trying to hand over the, the valuable val- vial of coaxium in exchange for her opening the door. And uh, <laughs> she's so smooth when Kira gets caught. Cause I genuinely don't think that she was going to rat him out, but the moment Kira gets grabbed, she immediately hits the alarm and rats out. Han as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I they basically handed her one year salary, or, yeah, or her retirement type situation. So, I mean, that is serious inducement for her to go. Like, I'm just going to push the button, and walk away here because I'm going to retire someplace really nice because of <laughs> because of this, uh, which is extreme temptation for somebody. And they also, she also might have gone like, this place is a hellhole, and they're trying to get away. So I'm just going to, you know, it's not quite Checkpoint Charlie, but it's really yeah. close. Oh, yeah. When you see the sort of desperation of the people and the, the security presence there, this is Coronet City in Corellia, so big coastal city there. But the security presence suggests that there are a lot of people trying to do exactly what Han and Kira uh-huh. are doing get get through this one choke point and i'll put in a a, the briefest of plugs for pablo hidalgo's fantastic visual guide for the movie uh you really should go you know purchase it check it out at your local library it's well worth the money or the time but it provides some interesting details about these security officers because the the empire has come in off screen, obviously, and not only have they conscripted these security personnel into service, but they've also done what the Empire does and installed or instilled a bunch of extra work requirements. So what was once maybe an eight hour shift has now become a 10 hour shift without the requisite increase Uh. in in pay. And so you they've almost created this breeding ground for this sort of corruption. Yeah. So we're going to demand you do more not pay you more and it's going to be more dangerous who's with me yeah. it's, <laughs> thanks yeah. but i love the line there you, you get the exchange where she sees the coaxium and she says you, you could be detained just for having this and han's like now what good would that do anybody it's just han's essence captured in one line i the <clears throat> i had no problem believing this was han solo so like everyone who was the, you know, the Harrison Ford purist, it's like, dude, give it up. The actor nailed so being Han Solo and did a great job with it of, 
I don't know how much rehearsing he did, how much coaching he had to, you know, to go, all right, you have one of the most iconic characters in Hollywood. You're going to be the second guy to play him. <laughs> no pressure, buddy. And he did a great, great job. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the first guy, uh, he was Harrison Ford. You may have heard of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Who could it have been? Who could it have been? So, and, and a good segue. So Han makes it to the other side in Coronet Spaceport there. Uh-huh. And then he runs into a recruit, an Imperial recruiting officer. He's, he's being hunted down and that's, uh, he sees the uh, the awesome Imperial recruiting commercial, which I don't know if you picked up. Oh, immediately. Absolutely. The theme music. <laughs> it's using the Imperial March, which, uh, you know, granted, John Williams' music has been canon in the sense that it was featured in the movie because you get, you know, the cantina music from uh, the band there and then, uh, you know, a little bit in Jabba's Palace and whatnot. But this... I, this was on a totally different level. This wasn't some like bespoke bar music that he created for a particular scene. This was like the Imperial March playing on an Imperial recruiting commercial, which was phenomenal. Uh, did, did they do it in a different key? Because it sounded... I think it was in major key. Okay. So, which we've heard the parody of that and like how yeah. it changes it. <laughs> that was brilliant. I mean, it's fun when shows do that. There was, you know, in the... Battlestar Galactica reboot, uh, the national anthem that they played was the theme music from the original show. Oh, yeah, yeah. So just having that that little homage, it's like, well done, guys, <laughs> of, you know, Star Destroyer flying in, TIE Fighters zooming around. It's like, join the Imperial Navy. It's like, okay. They got Han off his keister and over to the recruiter real fast. Yeah, it's there might have been other motivation, but yeah, it's uh, and how easy it was to enlist. Which, yeah, let, let's talk about that for a second. I, how did you? How did that that scene that sequence strike you? Uh dangerous because it's like, oh, you have no last name. We'll do, I'll just make one up for you. So there's now the the Ellis Island, you know, thing. Like the the U.S. military, we do take foreign-born nationals, and it's a way to help get citizenship in the United States. Well, there would be a little more vetting. We just don't grab anyone. Yeah. You know, I, I get the the idea of like, oh, you're going to be a grunt, so maybe beggars can't be choosers. But part of the this is my view of the empire. You know, there's a reason they're not using clones anymore, and it's been part of it. It's indoctrination. So the more people that you have believing in the imperial system, uh, the less likely you're going to have resistance because mm-hmm. people, you know, they're, they're part of the state that when they buy into it. And we see that on, is it uh, Mimba? Mimba, Mimban, Mimban. Mimban. Uh, yeah. Since we have the Mimbanese uprising or mm-hmm. freedom fighters, and we can talk about that. But one of the the officers running around, you know, yelled to victory and was clearly really gung-ho. He drank the Kool-Aid and believed in what they were doing. And, you know, like that's full-on indoctrination, not thinking of, you know, we're not liberating the planet. We're putting it under our heel. And he was excited to do it. Right before getting vaporized. Yeah. And yeah. And then a big mortar hit or something 
blew him to hell. So what's interesting to, to rewind for a second to the, to Han's enlistment from a legal standpoint, I guess in the real world, we've seen the army operate. Well, I, I back up even broader militaries operate in probably like three general ways in terms of getting recruits. One, you have a draft like we had for a number of years, you know, famously in, in World War II and the Vietnam War, where uh, you've got some period of mandatory military service for citizens. It doesn't appear that the empire has that. Uh, they do have what we've seen in, in history in terms of conscription, uh, the, the British Navy, Navy being the one that jumps to mind with uh, their, their infamous uh, press gangs. Press, yep, press gangs, impressment of, of in, in a lot of cases, enemy sailors into the British Navy. Yeah, that just started a war. Yeah, but go yeah. on. <laughs> but you, you do see that here. I, they don't make it that clear what's, that that's going on on Mimban. But again, in, in sort of the outside materials, you see that a lot of those grunt soldiers are not just academy rejects like Han, but they are, they've been pressed into, into imperial service because the empire doesn't have the ranks of the stormtrooper corps filled out yet. Yeah. And then, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and, it, and it could be a low bar just to, to again, fill the ranks, uh, indoctrinate, and they're fighting battles, if not full-blown wars on multiple planets. Mm-hmm. It would make sense that they're just, grabbing bodies you know for cannon fodder yeah yeah and i think that that speaks to the lack of a vetting process because if you were to walk into the last way i I mentioned three ways we talked talked the draft conscription and then uh the last way would be what we have today voluntary service the empire clearly has voluntary service and that's that's what han has entered into but if it's a pretty stark contrast. Han just gets snapped right up because you hit the nail on the head. They really don't care in most cases. I mean, you're, he's not going to uh, the, the Central Military Academy on Coruscant. They're, they're sending him off to a flight academy on uh, Karita, probably to be blown up just a few months later. And so f- from that standpoint, I guess it matters less what your background is at this point, the military, the, the Imperial Navy and army are in like vacuum mode. They just need bodies to fill the ranks. Uh, and at this point you don't even have a nascent rebellion yet. So the concern that insurgents might be trying to infiltrate the, the Imperial military is really not on their radar, at least as far as we're concerned or, or as far as we can see here. Yeah. Um, Seeds of the rebellion are probably there because there are a lot of people who were not on board with what happened. Right. But but the empire does come out swinging after the Clone Wars, and this uh, looking at w- Wikipedia, uh, I think it begins six years after the founding of the empire, mm-hmm. and then you know there's three year time jump, so we're now nine years into the new empire, so that would be ten years before A New Hope. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a you know and so that would be six years before we meet the crew of the ghost, yeah. and so Kanan's still relatively young. They, you know, like they might be starting to do not full blown rebel type activity, but 
resistance type activity because they don't agree with what's happening. Yeah, so, little little sprinkles here and there. But I think the thing that sets up, and this is going to set up another issue that we'll talk about down the line, is by voluntarily signing up, there is some sort of contract that's entered into there. He gets orders into the Imperial military. I will give the Empire a lot of credit here because the efficiency with which those orders are cut and handed to him blows my mind. If you were to try to go enlist today and they were to, to and you were to tell me that you got your orders same day, I would I would call you a like a big fat liar because uh, not even the mighty U.S. Army moves with that speed and efficiency. So, I want to go to flight school. Done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. Now, I, you know, a lot of that's a, a little bit of movie magic, I guess, because you're not going to have him sitting there signing Han Solo on a bunch of <laughs> Imperial enlistment contracts. But... Or, or taking ASVABs or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> Let's right, go over that's... here and do this basic math. <laughs> fly a TIE fighter. <laughs> All right, now time for your physical. Let's go. How's your vision? <laughs> how many how many Minox do you count? Um, but yeah. no, but there is a contract that's entered into, mm-hmm. and and at at its core level, forget whether he has some period of enlistment or something like that. By entering into Imperial military service, he is now coming under the the jurisdiction the authority of whatever imperial military code there is and we know i don't know that it's been named outright but we absolutely know that they have something like that in existence there is a a concept of military justice there that that even goes all the way forward into the first order i mean you know you've written a post josh about the executioners and whatnot so that legal concept is alive and well in the ranks there indeed it is and they give us a taste of it because we're not having, you know, star Wars jag, you know, like <laughs> that makes me sad. I know it would be lots of fun for us. <laughs> I don't know how everyone else will feel about this. Like five viewers, but they'd be really excited viewers. Yeah, and I don't know if John Favreau is thinking about that, but if he is, <laughs> we're happy to be consultants. Yeah. I want to, I won't charge a dime. I, I'll pay you for the, the pleasure. <laughs> We are so excited to be here. Yeah, yeah it's uh, yes. So that's still in the first ten minutes of the movie of these <laughs> issues. We get the three-year time jump where we're seeing uh, imperial forces blowing the hell out of uh, you know a planet where we don't even see the civilian population. The only thing we see are imperials running around. Uh, on one level, it's it's a really nice fog of war type mm-hmm. perspective because we're following Han around. All these things are just blowing up around him. He's you know he's seeing people get shot left and right. You know the the uh, you know the, the the scout walkers dropping in, and I do think that's some of the best footage we've ever seen of of scout walkers in combat, true combat. Uh, yeah. That that was pretty wicked but we know you never see the opposing force and i think just from like a you know world war one type battlefield it's right up there with it just being chaotic and insane and it's not two sides really engaging each other if they are you don't see them yeah yeah uh when the the cool the cool sort of tie-in thing that 
they also didn't make all that clear from the movie is that if you watch the Clone Wars series, there's at least like a very brief mention of some clone troopers fighting it out on Mimban. This was a planet that the Grand Army of the Republic was there to help liberate, and they actually armed and trained the Mimbanese soldiers. I think you see you see one briefly as he shot point blank by Beckett. I mean, it's like a blink of an eye shot. And then one of Enfys Nest's crew members or allies, whatever you want to call them, is uh, Mimbanese. You see him very, very briefly. But it's it's sort of just sadly, cruelly ironic that the Empire is right back here battling the people that they had just armed and trained. And uh, <laughs> poor Han stuck in the middle of it. Yeah, it's it's almost like they're uh, a couple ways to look at it. Um, Afghanistan on one level with, mm-hmm. you know, how the U.S. like, hey, we'll screw the Soviet Union because, the, uh, you know, Afghanistan is where empires go to die. And mm-hmm. so let's screw the Soviets and, you know, then we're war and terror. We're there. Or uh, World War II time and places like Vietnam or Korea and, uh, you know, the French end up, you know, going to war, you know, in, in foreign lands that, you know, they, they fought for, you know, during World War II. Yeah. Uh, interesting. When, when the the legal issue that popped into my mind, you hear Han talk about the fact that he's clearly not piloting anything in in the scene on Mimban. He his military career in the Empire has taken a sharp turn to the to the left, and you find out that he's been kicked off. He was kicked out of the flight academy at Corita, and thinking about that from a legal standpoint. Uh, it's an interesting sort of discussion, I guess, in there about military justice and, and what they can do. It sounds like, and we don't know for sure what his infractions were, but it sounds like probably some mix of disrespect, uh, not following orders, that sort of thing. Certainly stuff that you could be court-martialed for or whatever. But the Empire chooses, rather than to waste somebody that they've A, signed up, and B, spent money training, they do what an army can do and reassign you. And that can happen that, that, you know, you can get, you see soldiers today that uh, get disqualified from doing a particular job because of some infraction and they're forced to go do another job and potentially sent to another base. And you could find yourself in that situation, going to another base and deploying immediately to, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan. And there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, it's, it's just a funny parallel to the real world. Yeah, I had a really good buddy, naval officer, now a, I think he's now a full commander in the Naval Reserve, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, war and terror, he got assigned to Afghanistan with the army because the army was short on guys. <laughs> yeah. He did not have fun. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, this is not what I wanted to be doing. Yeah, and I, you know, the, the term that I am absolutely certain that is mirrored in the Star Wars universe as, as it exists in the real world. The controlling factor in, in almost anything is the needs of the army. And that drives, we, we talked about, we've talked about in, in past podcasts that commanders in the military real world have 
the authority and the, the decision-making power on how to handle criminal infractions. It's a, just a really unique aspect. And so the needs of the army is this unique motivator that, that guides that decision-making. And so I'm sure that his benevolent commander on Corita d- decided that there was a great opportunity for young private solo elsewhere in the galaxy. <laughs> yeah. Which then opens up the other legal issue where it's, it's the night after everything went to hell mm-hmm. and you know, Han has the, the statement of like, why are we here? And it's, you know, and it's like, no, we're the, we're the invader. (laughs) 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 We're not the good guys in this situation. And we should all acknowledge that. Yeah. Probably not good. uh, You know, uh, borderline insubordination where you, you know, openly question, you know, the, the superiors who again are fully indoctrinated in, you know, crazy beliefs of like, Hey, let's go. We're going to go put down the rebellion here and make these people knuckle under and install a government that, you know, does our bidding. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, this should be rubbing all of us the wrong way. Why, why is everyone going along with this? Yeah. I don't like this plan. And that gets us to his desertion where, well, you know, when we meet Beckett, there are multiple things at play because we have Beckett, Val and John. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John Farvo's alien, they're impersonating Imperial troopers. And Hans thinks, like, this is my time to get the hell out of here. <laughs> so multiple, just in that scene, multiple issues colliding. Your thoughts, Mr. Jag Officer? <laughs> so Han is putting himself perilously at risk of the crime of desertion. He actually... <laughs> He outright says later on when he's talking with Beckett about what to do after the uh, the conveyix train robbery goes south that he's a deserter. That's what he does is is run away. And desertion is probably other than maybe a wall is probably the like the one or two military specific crimes that are most commonly known or just they've become ubiquitous in our language. Uh, but it's one of the most serious crimes that, that you have out there, especially in Han's case, because it happened in wartime and that, that adds a, a particular flavor to it. What, what is normally a serious crime, if you commit desertion in wartime, can become a capital offense. Yeah. And President Lincoln you know, pardoned lots of deserters because he thought, so you're getting shot at. And you were scared, so you ran. We're not going to execute you for that. Yeah. And and that was a that was a big thing on Lincoln's part uh, because yeah, like you know, executing somebody for desertion because they ran when cannons started shooting at them. Verse, uh, you know, there there's another form like and you know with the Milai massacre. Mm-hmm. There was, which, you know, Han might fall a little bit more into this, you know, um, definitely Finn would for what happens. Uh, there was only one guy at Ni Lai that said this was wrong and threw down his rifle and walked away. And technically that, that would be a form of desertion. Now, like he didn't you know, like go native and hide in the jungles of Vietnam. <laughs> he, like he eventually went home and, uh, you know, he, he didn't you know, leave the, the platoon. But he said, no, this is wrong. <laughs> and yeah. just one. 
When, and the thing that makes desertion unique and different from AWOL is permanence, the intent to remain away permanently. It's Article 85 under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, UCMJ. AWOL is, is more of a temporary absence. Desertion and what makes it a more serious crime and ultimately punishable by death potentially is that intent to just go away forever. Uh, you know, f- real world famously, there was the case of the, I think a couple, there was one famous soldier in uh, the Korean War that deserted and defected to the North Korean side. And I don't know that he was ever returned to U.S. custody. Yeah, okay, they loved him for propaganda purposes. Oh, yeah. But the the connection here to, to Han and what makes this a really kind of dumb crime to commit if you're looking to, to you know save your own hide down the line is that ordinarily the military will lose jurisdiction to prosecute you if you if and when you leave the service. So if I were to get completely out of the army today, I, you know the army couldn't prosecute me for a crime that I committed on my last day. The difference would be, you know, as a reservist now, they can pull me back onto active duty. If you're retired, they can pull you back onto active duty. Um, but that's an important jurisdictional note because it's not like the civilian world where the, the statute of limitations is really your only caveat there. So first, Han may not be wearing the uniform when he's trucking Obi-Wan, Luke, and the droids to, to Alderaan, but the Empire could certainly still bring him back in if they wanted to. Also, that statute of limitations, normally in the military, it's five years for most crimes, except for a few, you know, murder and rape and whatnot. Uh, Ordinarily, that clock will run no matter what. With desertion, there's a special rule that if you desert, the statute tolls. So in other words, the pause button is hit the moment you go away. So again, if the Empire wanted to, say the Battle of Endor went south and and Han got captured on, uh, there was some of his Ewok pals, they could put him on trial for all of his crimes in the military, dating back to this movie, which is sort of a, a... a heavy order. But in, what's great about Solo is that Beckett makes a really phenomenal point about the crime that, that's really applicable to the real world, which he's drawn a comparison to Dryden Voss. He says, you know, the Empire doesn't send out a crew to hunt you down. Dryden Voss does. It's the same in the real world. You're not going to see the army expending resources to go find AWOL soldiers or deserters. And most often the average AWOL soldier or deserter gets picked up because there's an active warrant for their arrest and they get pulled over. They, they somehow come onto the radar of, of local police and then that deserter or a typically it's a deserter warrant will pop up in the system. Then they get returned to military custody. So Han really, I understand his motivation in doing it, but he, he really put his neck out there. Yes, he did. And, when they catch him for desertion, they throw him into a big mud pit where we meet <laughs> Chewbacca. And apparently they were feeding prisoners to Chewbacca. Yeah, don't worry about the court martial. It's when a captain accuses you of desertion, the lieutenant has the authority to just execute you. <laughs> yeah, that that's a pretty hardcore system there. Yeah. And so there, there are multiple issues. It's one thing to go, okay, he's a deserter and we'll just shoot him. Okay, 
fine. It's another one to go, we'll feed them to the beast. So <laughs> dual issues, because that's cruel and unusual punishment out of the gate that a civil society wouldn't do. It's like, it'd be like us feeding a deserter to alligators. It's like, oh, well, we caught them, and into the gator pit you go. Um, that'd be cruel and unusual. Well, Chewbacca is a sentient being, as opposed to, say, an alligator, which, no, it doesn't do math. You know, it can't fly. Any, you know, it, it's an animal. Uh, if they could. Yeah, it, it, that would make them more dangerous. But Chewie, you know, like we don't know what he did. You know, that, you know, the Wookiees were enslaved and all kinds of bad things have happened. And somehow he's not on his own planet. He's in a big mud pit forced to eat people to survive uh i think of war crimes of cannibalism because it's desecration of a corpse but chewbacca as a prisoner is being used as the instrumentality to execute people in order for him to eat that is just so messed up i mean it's a double negative because it's it's cruel and unusual punishment for the guy who's being executed and it's cruel and unusual punishment for the Wookiee. It also means Chewbacca has eaten people. When it, the, and this is another reason to buy the visual guide. They don't make it clear in the movie or in the book, but it's Kashyyyk and the Wookiees generally have been imprisoned and enslaved by the empire and used as slave labor across the galaxy. Chewie was not in that position. The The visual guide talks about him being betrayed by a, a greedy bounty hunter and it landed him in Imperial custody. So it's not clear if he has been lawfully imprisoned by some crime, like the, his you know, a bounty hunter just gave him up or, or whatnot. But I think there's some due process issues because if, if Chewbacca has some rights as a galactic citizen there. I don't think that being, you know, kept with no food or I guess being fed human beings in a muddy pit is, you know, much of any kind of, I think he's got a habeas corpus action. <laughs> to be sure. <laughs> Definitely denied the right to counsel. <laughs> so, <Yeah. just laughs> so many levels of wrong. Um, <laughs> Chewie had to eat people. At least one dude's corpse is down there. So that's just, that's wrong. Fundamentally <laughs> wrong uh, for for what happens. That uh, scene did have one of my favorite line, groups of lines in the movie where the stormtroopers up above that are watching the whole thing are like, oh, he killed him too, too fast. Yeah, kill him slower. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Typical it's privates. Like, it's like, oh God, you guys are so evil. Uh, <laughs> just so, so horribly evil because this is now entertainment for you, which raises all kinds of messed up legal issues. Uh, yeah, so lot, lots to digest there, literally. Uh, uh, but, you know, they do get out. And, uh, and so it's nice to know where the life dead originates. Uh, that Chewie would not have gotten out of there but for Han unless the, he thinks the life dead is helping liberate other Wookiees. Uh, so th- th- that's interesting. It'd be interesting to know if the book or other materials dive into that a little bit more because we fully haven't seen the life dead explained. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So we then get into theft of Imperial aircraft. And uh, then my favorite, train robbing. So let's, let's focus on the theft of Imperial aircrafts, you know, stealing government property. Yeah, your thoughts? That is a – talk about crimes that could be stacked against Han. Larceny of military property is actually its own subset, its own crime, its own brand of larceny under the UCMJ. I actually uh, prosecuted at least one soldier that comes to mind for doing exactly that. I mean, the, my case involved military radios, not an AT hauler <laughs> like Han. But even though he's, he's thrown in with this band, I think the, the rest of them would be probably prosecuted for grand larceny. But for Han in particular, I mean, this is a huge piece of property, probably millions of credits worth of imperial steel there. And the, the, crime, the, the, the crime of larceny of military property scales with the value of property, just like the normal crime of larceny in, in the, on the civilian side. And once you go above a certain amount, it becomes, uh, you know, pretty, pretty substantial crime. And so, if, <laughs> you know, again, we're talking about the list of things that Han could be prosecuted with. I don't think they intended to give that AT hauler back. So it's not going to be wrongful appropriation at all. I think they intended to use this thing. They, they clearly took it away from Mimban, went straight to Vandor for the conveyex heist. And probably the idea was to ditch this thing and get on a clean ship once the uh, all the coaxium was offloaded. That it was. Which then brings us to why they wanted that in order to go rob a train. The train robbing cases are at the you know, past the cowboy era, which is surprising because a lot of people think of cowboys and that there's train robberies. Well, the, the cases that get into prosecuting for robbing trains are late 19th century. So there is a – we have a case from Missouri, uh, and their law was passed in 1895. And it's, it's written in language like it's 1895. Uh, and there's uh, basically if you're trying to steal anything from the train, threaten anybody, uh, there, there has to be a fear element. And, and that can just be assumed. It's like, okay, you, you cut the train up apart and you took the engine and you threw the engineer off. <laughs> um, yeah, fear is implied. So you know they you don't it's not an element that needs to be proven um but lots of interesting issues there uh because those laws for punish you know violations for train robbing is a death sentence and one of the cases from the territory of new mexico jumped in on that and uh where somebody uh tried saying that's cruel and unusual punishment to execute somebody for doing train robbing. And, you know, the court of appeals said, no, it's not cruel and unusual punishment. And there's this very long diatribe that, that the court offers saying why the death penalty is justified. And just to read from this quote, and this is from uh, the territory of New Mexico, uh, v. uh, Ketchum. And that's, uh, 10 and M seven, one, eight, and it's citing 1115 of the compiled laws of 1897. Uh, and this is what the court says. 
Trains are robbed by armed bandits of desperate men determined upon the accomplishment of their purpose, and nothing will pre prevent the consumption of their desire, not even the necessity to take human life. They uh, commence their operations by overpowering the engineer and fireman. They run the train to some suitable locality. They prevent the interference of any person on the train by intimidation or the use of deadly weapons and go so far as to take human life and so preventing that interference. They prevent any person from leaving the train for that purpose of placing dangerous signals upon the track to prevent collisions with other trains, thus willfully and deliberately endangering the life of every passenger on board. If the express messenger or train crew resist their attack upon the cars, they promptly kill them. And this in many other ways, they display their utter disregard of human life and property and show that they are outlaws of the most uh, desperate and dangerous character. So hang on, we're fine with that. And it's like, you read that's like, they didn't mess around. They were super pissed off. And it's like, no, we're going to kill you. And, you know, that describes the the solo train robbery to a T. It does. They, they were all absolutely desperate. You didn't get exactly why they were so desperate until after the robbery went south. But the moment that the Imperial range troopers started to come out of the back of the train, they killed at least one that we can see. Mm -hmm. Took a shot, a blaster bolt directly to the, to the chest. And yeah, there was a desperation in every aspect of what they were doing. They were, blowing out a, a huge portion of the track just to ensure that the, the mission went off with, without a hitch there. Um, so it lines up exactly with New Mexico's decision there. Yeah. And, and also with Missouri's as well of like, screw you guys. Like we, we, we have no tolerance for this. And, and technically what, what they're doing for Voss, you know, in Crimson Dawn, it's like, you guys got into this mess and you know, the law also gets into, especially the, the Missouri one, of uh, damaging train tracks, uh, rail spikes. And what does Val do? You know, she puts explosives on it to blow up a bridge so to cause a train derailment. Like that, under the, you know, the, the old law, and I think it's still effective. I don't know if anyone's ever, again, challenged the constitutionality of a death sentence for train robbing, but I'm... She chooses to sacrifice herself to blow up the train tracks because of the Viper droids. Yeah. You know, it's not because of, of you know, the freedom fighters that, that come into play. It's because she's trying to save her crew from the Viper droids. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that meets the exact letter of the law for a felony that could either be imprisonment or we execute you. And just looking at late 19th century logic, they would have zero problem hanging, the, hanging Beckett's team for what they did. Yeah, and I, interestingly, I just doing a little background reading on train robberies in general, it was a common tactic for them not to, to leap off of horses or whatever, but to actually derail train the train itself, either to, to take it over and stop it and move it to some location where they could rob it or to literally derail it, cause property damage and endanger the lives of the, the folks there. And yeah, the empire, this is a valuable shipping lane. I saw a comment from somebody like, why doesn't the empire just use spaceships? Like 
A, stop it because I wanted to see a train robbery in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> so I'll have none of that. But B, they had a particular purpose for, for building this track because it was intentionally made to make it that much more inaccessible. The the train depot or the supply depot where the, this conveyance train was heading had no, it was not accessible by any ship. And so in a way it, it was built to deter this kind of theft. I mean, it, it stacked it so that it was a very high stakes endeavor to try to rob one of these supply trains. Well, that, and we still use trains and yeah, you know, when cars are made in Japan, they're not loaded on an airplane and flown to the United States. Yeah. That's not how this works. They're put in shipping containers. They're put on, you know, big ships that then sail across the Pacific. They yeah. dock. They're then put onto train cars, and then they're shuffled out via train and ultimately potentially by then semi. That's how, that's how commerce works. So the fact that the empire still has trains is completely normal because to build aircraft big enough to move that amount of volume would be substantial and they're going they have to be going to some port where the that material is either going to be refined or taken off planet to be refined in special ships that can do the refrigeration necessary to keep the thing from overheating and blowing up. So that's completely plausible and makes sense in the limited science of Star Wars because science fantasy really doesn't explain how stuff works. <laughs> uh, there's apparently space air that they can hear noises in this one when they're going through the, the maw and everything. So yay. Uh, but yeah, the, the train issue makes a lot of sense and it's, I mean, it's literally a phenomenal Western story uh, just because it, it meets the laws that we have, which were based upon fact, which is why laws are passed in the first place. So Ron Howard and the Kasdans and everyone else did a great job with that. So I, I it's a great scene. Absolutely wonderful scene. Did you ever think that you would be digging up train robbery law to use in an analysis of Star Wars. No, and I'm grateful. <laughs> the Kasdans should get Christmas cards if, yeah. if I knew where to send them. They and 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 Opie Cunningham brought it to life in a great way. So yeah. again, and you know the fight that they have on the train is pure Star Wars fight. Oh yeah, I, yeah. and it's something we haven't seen. It's a high speed shootout on a train with aircraft and speeders zipping around and, and you're fighting a three dimensions uh, and trying to uncouple train cars. Yeah. And it does raise an interesting issue because yes, this is train robbery through and through, but um, you know, nests team, they're not, I mean like the empire would consider them criminals, but they're at the beginning of the rebellion. And, you know, it's not quite a military operation, but it's definitely guerrilla tactics grabbing fuel for the beginning of the rebellion. Yeah. So, again, I just, wonderful scene. I mean, there, there are other great scenes in this, you know, like what, you know, what Voss's, you know, uh, yacht looks like. And uh, that, that's another, we talk about connections. When I first saw that, so this is another one for you Clone Wars fans out there. If you're familiar with the character Sat Duchess Satine, Obi-Wan's old flame, 
there is an episode, I think it's just one, uh, but it, it is set on her ship, the Coronet. So she's got a yacht that she occasionally travels off Mandalore with. And it's a very distinctive ship that looks a heck of a lot like Dryden Voss's ship, the first watch. And when I first saw Dryden's ship, I was like, wait a minute. Did he take Satine's ship after she was killed in the Clone Wars and, and retrofit it? It's not the case. They're different ships, but the same starship manufacturer built the two. And I, I, it's like little things like that, that that are just so phenomenally awesome for me that they take the time to make those little connections. What makes Star Wars magic and, and this movie really special is the level of detail. You know, Rogue One on Jeddah, there was lots of detail in, in the street scenes and all the aliens they they created. This takes it up a notch because whether we're on the bar scene where we meet Lando, and I'm not quite sure what planet that happened on, so that that's a little unclear to me, uh, to uh, Lando again, to seeing all the people on the yacht. Uh, wonderful detail because there are different species, uh, you know, and you, I know in the visual guy, there's probably great backstory and what, like, you know, what those individuals and uh, species are. And, you know, God bless them for doing that because that's just, you know, detail that gives this thing life as opposed to it looking sterile and, you know, just being a room full of human beings. And it's like, why does Voss's face change? Like, is he human or was that, was he scarred? Was that uh, like some cosmetic decision that he made for weird plastic surgery to look more intimidating? <laughs> What's up with that? Uh, you know, is that the Crimson Dawn mark that, that people get? You know, so there's some interesting stuff at play there that, you know, and I don't know if there's any answers spilled out for that, but like, that's cool. Like, that's what gives this stuff, gives Star Wars that special ambiance that not all shows get. And that's the beauty of, of all of this. As, as much as I, you know, tout something like the visual guide, there's also beauty and fun in not knowing all those details. And mm-hmm. just, because you don't have to, to, to enjoy these movies, you don't have to have every little backstory or detail or character explained. and the a new hope is a perfect example of that how i for folks that watched it either originally in the theaters or or you know at some point during the 80s before there was all this excess material out there you didn't have descriptions of all these characters and while there are certainly people that wanted a backstory for every character just the act of knowing why not knowing every single thing about a lot of those characters that's fun in and of itself and that's why it's so cool that they just jam pack all these scenes with stuff that makes it clear that there's a universe that's operating and living and breathing there. And they're not going to take the time to explain and show it all. And that's, what's cool. Yeah. Cause you don't have to, you just, no. it's like, what's the dude with like the, the two headed thing next to Lando that looks neat. I would like that action figure. Like yeah. that's, uh, you know, you think back to the first movie, you know, you could get all the, the characters that were in the, the cantina, it's not like they have backstories. It's just, yeah. who's Walrus, dude? 
they were literally just creating names for him based on what they like. There's Yak Face. Yeah, yeah, it's just hairy dude, snake person. Yeah, it's and and then it got more sophisticated as time yeah. went on. Like, oh, oh, look what happened here. <laughs> now you you uh, noted some legal issues with Lady Proxima and the White Worms at the beginning. Yeah, and this was just a, nothing nothing in particular, you know, no law to, to analyze this on. But if you watch the the scene where Han and Kira are at Coronet City at the spaceport and they're trying to escape, one of Lady Proxima's head thugs, Moloch, comes in with his, his band of enforcers. And there's this interesting exchange. A stormtrooper comes up to him immediately and tries to confront him. And he puts his staff right in the, the trooper's chest. And then the next you see, the stormtroopers are working with Moloch to try to find them. And that just fascinated me. There's this, you know, the, the sort of law-oriented Imperials are uh, in league with this very clear black market criminal organization. It was just an interesting i don't know if if any of that stood out or was interesting to you but I, I found that fascinating yeah i missed part of that the first time around so i'll watch for it again tomorrow uh it would make sense from controlling the society mm-hmm. and if there's a weak government there you look towards the those who are actually in control and if it's underground yep. crime that's the you know de facto government that's who they're going to work with. Yeah. Which is fascinating because the empire is about control. But, and you know, if by any means necessary in, in some aspects, so if that means aligning with some unsavory characters to achieve your goals, then so be it. Yeah. So again, it worked for me. Well, let's, let's dig into a little bit of the character issues with this, because I, I listened to so the Coffee with Kenobi guys and the Star Wars report, and I don't remember which one you know, said this. You know, one of them said Han doesn't really change in this, and, uh, and I disagree with that. So we go from you know, him being you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and you know, mm-hmm. he's got his flame, and you know, they're trying to escape. Uh, when he joins the empire and like his motivation is to get back and save Kira and he's clearly not on board. You know, he's not somebody who literally just follows orders when you're seeing what effectively are war crimes taking place, mm-hmm. being able to go, I'm not okay with this. Like he actually says no and, and pushes back. Uh, he also learns, uh, you know, from Beckett, I mean, to shoot first. I mean, like that, he didn't mess around with that. You know, Beckett's about to mansplain the, you know, I'm going to execute you. <laughs> and Han shoots him. It's like, well played. Um, and he's also good at manipulating Beckett for, you know, the final, um, you know, the double cross. Because they know Beckett's going to double cross them. And that must have been Han's big plan. So, uh I don't think Han gets jaded a lot in this because even at the end, he still has a good feeling. He's still optimistic. Uh, you know, he does have that cowboy hero and it must be, you know, in the intervening years of working for Java where things go sideways more so than not. Um, the other thing that 
some other commentators mentioned was um, with Kira, you know, that she sees an opportunity to take Voss's place. And I don't agree with that at all. I think it, if she had her free will, she would have run with Han, but she's clearly afraid of Darth Maul and yeah. doesn't want to get hunted down by him and cut into little pieces. So I, what she, I think, it's, I oh, think she, I, she sacrifices herself, you know, to save Han because what does she say to Han with like, I'm going to be right behind you. She's not doing a double cross. She's saving his ass Yeah, and saying, go with Chewbacca. You need Chewbacca. Chewbacca needs you. Somebody trying to screw you isn't going to give you useful life advice of what you're going to need. And, you know, a true friend is going to be there for you. And pay pay attention to what she's, I'm not, this is not directed at you because I think that, I think you hit it spot on. Mm -hmm. Turbo lift up to confront or to, to meet Dryden Voss before the whole deal goes down. What does she say to Han? What's that exchange? Han says, you don't know everything. And she looks at him with this knowing look and says, no, just a little more than you. And it plays so beautifully because you can't think of this movie or those scenes in a vacuum. You've got to think it of it in the, the context that it was written and intended, which is to be hand in glove with what Maul was doing with the Shadow Collective. And that, you know, Maul is not this, it's not that he's just a force wielder and he's a mean guy or whatever. Go back and watch the Clone Wars episodes and see what he did. I mean, he comes in out of nowhere and with the Pike Syndicate, with Black Sun, some of the most powerful crime organizations that no one messes with in the galaxy. Even Dryden Voss isn't willing to to piss off the Pikes. And the only reason he goes along with the plan is because there's some level, some degree of separation there. Uh, But Maul comes in and consolidates all of these i i reference the folk that the naysayers out there to the scene where maul walks into black sun headquarters and murders the the leader of the black sun cartel i mean the most powerful criminal organization in the galaxy arguably uh confronts the hut uh cartel you know this is not somebody to be trifled with and it has nothing to do with the fact that he uses the force it's everything about his ruthlessness and his cunning. And I saw a commenter on Twitter that made the fantastic point uh, of asking, you know, ask yourself why Kira and Dryden Voss know a martial art like Terras Kasi, a martial art that, at least in the expanded universe, was specifically designed to counter Jedi powers. It's because of a fear of the guy at the top of the food chain. So I think you hit it absolutely right on the head. This isn't a power grab by Kira so much as I love you. I know you love me, but for all of us, for your sake, for my sake, I'm going to take this. Yeah, because he will hunt us down and kill us, or I can jump on the grenade for you. Because she clearly is not a happy camper. With yeah. what she has to do. She's no. visibly upset. She does not want to be going into the, the psychopath of, uh, you know, sadistic half 
man <laughs> that that is holding his legs together with the force. Let's uh, not forget that that Maul is also probably the the galaxy's number one award winner in holding grudges. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's there's a lot there, um, which also Maul is a foil that I haven't mentioned this before on any podcast, but. You know, since there's significant rumors of a Kenobi movie, and I will believe it when I see a press release from Lucasfilm. Until that happens, I don't believe it. I don't. Yeah, same, same with this Boba Fett movie stuff. I mean, you know. I'll believe it when Lucas says it's real. Until then, it's just wild speculation from people who claim to have contacts. I think, looking at New Hope, even though Obi Wan Kenobi is old. He could have taken out Vader. I think it was actually more of a fair fight. So here's the analysis that that I come to this and why he chooses not to. One, Maul is extremely powerful. When we see uh, Maul confront Kenobi on Tatooine and Rebels, Kenobi takes him out in one blow. Just done. And Maul is done for. I mean, it's very Seventh Samurai, just cuts him down because Obi-Wan Kenobi is now super strong in the Force. All these years on Tatooine, he's been practicing. He knows what he's doing. He's communing with Yoda remotely. I don't know how he learned that Darth Vader survived and what's been happening because it's not like his, you know, how much news comes in and he thought he had finished Anakin off. I think it would have been a fair fight if both of them actually chose to fight. We know that Vader from End of Rogue One, he just goes through those rebels and cuts them to hell because he's pissed off and can. Mm -hmm. When we see both of them on the Death Star, they clearly are there just to have a conversation and the lightsabers are just a means to (laughs) have that discussion. Let's slap these things together. I got a few words to say to you. Yeah, because it's just, they're having a discussion. They probably, it probably could have been a brutal fight with grandpa beating the crap out of the guy on a respirator. And I think Kenobi could have won, but that would not have been a victory. So if, if Kenobi had cut down Vader on the Death Star, which has what, 500,000 stormtroopers on it. Thank give or take. Yeah. Yeah. They would not get off the Death Star. He can't <laughs> stop all of them. <laughs> and they're not getting away because they realize, oh, okay, we're going to stop them now because that tracking device thing, okay, that, that was a mistake. The, the, the king of choking people in the HR nightmare is dead. We're going to take out these five people and their two droids and call it a day. And that would have been that. So Obi-Wan Kenobi sacrificed himself because that was the only way for everyone to get off the Death Star so they could later destroy it. Because if Obi had t- taken out Vader, no one would have gotten out of there alive. Yeah, and I, you know, it's a critical insight into Luke's character. He knows that his best way to help Luke going forward isn't to physically be there for him. He's he's too old to continue being the the, uh, the sort of mentor that he needs. I mean, and. It, that's what his training on Tatooine has been. Uh, you know, Yoda sends him off with the instructions to, that I, I've got a new, a new trick to teach you. 
he's not going to not use that. And in that moment, I think it's, it's an absolute interplay between exactly what you're saying. He delays Vader and keeps Vader and the rest of the stormtroopers from attacking the, the Falcon. But it's also a necessary spark to, to Luke and the rest of the rebellion that, okay, now I'm, I'm freed up. I can help you. Cause I, I think if he were living and sitting on the rebel base on Yavin four, while Luke was up on the death star, I think Luke misses that shot and the death star blows up Yavin. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, and I heard interviews that, uh, Kenobi was supposed to survive somehow. And Alec Guinness didn't want that because he thought the lines were so horrible. He wanted out. <laughs> so, um, and I, I've seen quotes from, from Guinness talk about that, the lines, the lines. And if you watch uh, rocket jump posted, uh, when last Jedi came out, how, uh, star Wars was saved in the edits because the, the original version that Lucas wanted was atrocious and it exists. And uh, Marshall Lucas rightfully won that Oscar because it would have been a bloody train wreck without her. And we would not be talking about this today. It would have been, it would have been like one of those weird 70s sci-fi movies up there with, you know, silent writing that people might, you know, occasionally reference, but yeah. it's not known by the planet. Uh, but that's just this this big continuity, and while why uh, Maul is important, big picture, uh, because it does show how powerful Ken- Kenobi became, mm-hmm. and why sacrifice is important for Luke to understand, which is then Luke's big play at the end of Last Jedi, with his yeah. sacrifice move in order to save everybody. So it's um, again we get that circle. Uh, storytelling, but it's very different, extremely different. Uh, this also makes me wonder if in the standalone films, uh, well, in the first two standalone films, the only people that we've seen with lightsabers are the people on the dark side. And I don't know if if Maul's still considered Sith or just a dark side user because it's a religion and I don't know if he's following it or if he's just using you know, the, the power of it. But you know, we've only seen red lightsabers in the standalone movies, and I don't know if that's something that will continue. Um, if there's a Kenobi movie, we know that it won't <laughs> because <laughs> we know he'll he will light up at some point. Uh, but but anyway, I I loved this movie, and I look forward to seeing it. You know, you know, a couple more times, and then buying the Blu-ray when it's out because this was a fun ride, and I I would. First off, if people listen to this without seeing the movie, uh, that was a mistake. Uh, but it, this is a fun movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm right there with you, and I hope to squeeze in at least one more viewing before little baby Harper comes. Yeah. So, so if it's a girl, will it be Kira Harper or uh, Memphis you know. Nest Harper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, we should probably acknowledge the slavery issue. So, yeah, we shouldn't forget that. Uh, one of the reasons I loved L three so much was, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, Carrie, you know, from NASA JPL, who did our mock trial. Mm-hmm. She texted me while I was still seeing it, you know, and the text was just Josh, and. <laughs> 
uh, you know, like we're pioneers because L3, L3 does represent droid civil rights in a pretty yeah. significant manner. And, you know, they don't even serve our kind here. Or the fact that there's robot, you know, fighting, that's right up there with like having, you know, fighting dogs. Yeah. Um, which again, stand, stay tuned for that blog post of, you know, they're just, I mean, that's not fun battle bots. Battle bots would not be acceptable if the AI actually had personalities and hopes and feelings. Like, why are you torching me? Stop this. True. Ow, that buzzsaw hurts. <laughs> no, it's, you're right up there with people who breed pit bulls to go out and kill each other. You're a bad person. <laughs> even though Clint Howard's adorable to see him in that, but that's not important. Uh, the fact when we get to Kessel and it's, you know, it's L3 who liberates, starts liberating droids and the droids go out and start liberating each other. And then it's the droids who've been like the enforcers, at least in the control room, who start freeing all the biological people yeah. who are enslaved. I thought that was beautiful. Oh Just, yeah. Uh, I'm so glad we took this job. <laughs> just, just want to applaud and and God bless uh, Daniel Glover uh, because uh, his reaction to his droid getting shot—I mean, just powerful, visceral. I mean, clearly very moved, very upset. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, they they took a robot dying and made it you know one of the emotional cores of the movie. It's like. Good job. That hit it hit harder, much harder than K two S O dying in Rogue One. Got a doubt. Yeah, it's both are. Mm, I need to see Solo a couple more times to figure it out because you know, we don't see Cassian with K two. K two is a sacrifice. You know, he's yeah. he's holding him off. It's a complete sacrifice play. Uh, L3 is she just gets hit, but then we get, you know, Lando's emotional human reaction, and we also watch her die in his arms and in her reactions to death with what's happening to me. Uh, yeah. But even though part of her does live on in the Falcon, which, you know, might change her definition of the Falcon if it does have a living AI within the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, how much of her personality is there? Enough, <laughs> enough, to, enough to mess with 3PO, that's for sure. You have a peculiar <laughs> dialect. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I, and I'm okay with it. I'm absolutely okay with it. I just, I, I thought that was a wonderful scene and, and how she liberates everybody and the droids liberate Wookies and people and everyone else who's enslaved. It's it's not like they just head for the hills or they turn on the biologics. They turn on their oppressors and they free the others who are oppressed. <laughs> and that is just you know it's 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 beyond a John Brown moment. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh it's it's really cool. So yeah. credit to the writers and as a lawyer, thank you. Yeah, you've got me ready to go see this again. It's it's fun. Now, what um? So you got the book. What other goodies do you have for so it? So I got the what is it called? Outlaws. There's a young, a young adult book that came out 
uh, on third or excuse me on Friday along with this one. I don't have it close at hand. I have not cracked into that one, but I think it's a Han and Kira story. Okay. And I have not. I got the little M sixty eight speeder, the the oh. speeder that Han has at the very beginning. I got the little toy of that. It's fun. It has like a a rubberized front, and if you crash it into something. It springs Han out of the driver's seat. <laughs> nice. I cannot wait. I it, I don't think it's come out yet, but there is a, a six-inch scale Enfys Nest and Swoop bike that's coming out with like a little stand. So for, for those of you collectors out there, they've had Ray's speeder and then Luke's speeder. Well, now they've got Enfys Nest speeder coming out with her and a two-pack, and it looks phenomenal. And what's the other? They've got a six inch of L three coming out that looks really, really good. Yeah, I so, I don't think they have a three point seven five yet of her. I, I haven't found it. If they not if, that if I've they, seen. Yeah, the 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 toy line, the launch of the toys was sort of a, a fumble in my opinion. There wasn't much of a a rollout. We we can it's an, a podcast for another day talking about the marketing aspect but i you know when people talk about how this movie is done in theaters it has everything to do with the timing and nothing to do with the movie itself in my opinion christmas would have been a better time yeah christmas with uh, the caveat that it was 12 months away from the last star wars movie eventually we may get to two a year and and get trained in the way the mcu has has trained us to expect their release dates but we're not there yet yeah i would well we're gonna wait 18 months for the next one so yeah. that's good yeah. i would i prefer december releases oh yeah it's family gets together i mean i understand that we just had the anniversary so like i get that um and it's fun going to see star wars in shorts and a t-shirt that's also mm-hmm. cool uh but i prefer the christmas launch uh, it's yeah. just there's a different vibe with uh, the toy marketing and uh, it's just having Star Wars as part of Christmas is just nice and uh, it's a different feel. One of the some of the toys I've been picking up, if we can call them toys, is the uh, the blind boxes. That okay. Are kind of the uh, Fuko Pop bobbleheads, but yeah, you know, yeah. They, they they have eyes. They look better and. Uh, I used the Chewbacca one in the Life Debt blog post, and I really like those. Uh, they they look sharp. I have the. Uh, What's uh, your favorite that you've pulled so far? So so far, I got Kira, Chewbacca, uh, uh, Inverness Nest, and uh, Beckett. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chewie looks the best. Okay. Uh, he's got his little goggles on, right? He's he's got his goggles on. <laughs> Kira looks awesome, and and. Uh, it is the later outfit as opposed to the one with the little mini skirt that yeah. the three five or the three seven uh, figure has, and I did get that one. Now I also got the you know the little Chewbacca figure uh, for the Black series. I got a uh, a Han and Lando, and oh, uh, you've gotten a Lando. Uh, I do have the the Range Trooper actually that I found with you mm-hmm. at WonderCon. That's an, a phenomenal figure. I still haven't seen it in the in the wild at a store, but I'm really, really hoping to find the Lando six yeah. inch. 
because um, I keep looking. I like I pop into targets and I broke down and you know and got the, the smaller ones for blog posts. Yeah. Because uh, I I needed something, but I I ordered the range find uh, the the range trooper off Amazon because mm-hmm. feature posts. Um, and he he does look quite handsome. Uh, I love the Tarkin that came out with this launch as well because they you know that that sculpt of Tarkin is bloody amazing. I still haven't seen that one either in in the uh, in real in stores. I haven't seen it in a store either. I, we, um, Buddy picked it up for me at Silicon Valley Comic Con. And oh, nice. he's like, hey, they got it. And it, it was basically normal price or maybe like five bucks above. I was like, get it, oh, yeah. please. <laughs> it's like, and so he got me the three of you know, Han, Lando, and Tarkin. And Kira was was like 40 and like, and you know, it's supposed to, you know, retail is supposed to be 25. So finding her is a lot harder. And even on the Amazon, it's, it's, she's higher. So um, maybe at one of the cons, you know, we'll be able to find her as a, as a black series. And I don't remember if her black series is, you know, the, the Corella outfit or the, uh, you know, gangster outfit, mm-hmm. know which one, I mean, like the one with the cape looks, you know, land, one of Lando's capes looks phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they do one of her like that, that would be, pretty sweet so that being said you know there's some there's some good swag um when i was at disney i did get one of the solo hats um i got one of the t-shirts as well so they've um uh and, and i did get the may the fourth shirt that has the uh uh you know the the, the new falcon on the back That's um excellent. and it's good to know how the falcon got messed up so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good to know how that happened yeah. So, so with that, uh, everyone, um, thanks for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this chat, uh, please leave a review. If you got ideas or questions, message us, you know, tweet to us. Uh, you can shoot us a note through the blog. And everyone, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America. <laughs>